0: Church, you can go and grab your Bibles and open up with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. Uh, We've been studying Colossians for the last couple of months, and we're in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. And Let's go to the Lord again for a word of prayer and just ask for his blessings on this part of our service. Uh, Lord, our our hearts have been so edified just from the, the truth that has been sung by the church body this morning Uh, lord thank you that when we are tempted to despair and lord those temptations to despair are so frequent I, i don't doubt that there are even some here this morning who are tempted to despair looking at their own record of righteousness we're thankful for a savior who mastered your law for us we're thankful for a savior who has the names of his people written on his hands engraven on his heart and so father we come thankful for Christ this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand even more deeply what Christ has done for us. I pray that you would free us from any sort of temptation to move away from that. I pray for those, Lord, who are in the pit of despair this morning, who are aware of their sin and who are apart from Christ. I pray, God, that you would extend mercy this morning and that they would come to put their faith in Christ. And so, Lord, we're asking that that through your spirit you would do a supernatural work this morning, something that, that I can't do, that the folks who led us in singing can't do, that no Sunday school teacher can do. Uh, we're, de- we're dependent on your power, and God, we ask that you would work as you see fit, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. I was singing this week, um, you know, virtually every society out there honors and uh, m- memorializes People who protect others by sounding warnings. So for instance, here we are 150 years later and everybody knows the name Paul Revere, right? Why do we know Paul Revere? What's he known for? He gave the warning that the British troops were on the move. I was reading a story of uh, the the city of Krakow, Poland, where there is a a regular ongoing memorial to the man in Krakow who had saved the city years earlier, back in the 13th century century. When the Mongols were on the move, they were sweeping across Europe, and they were sweeping across Asia, and one of the tangential groups to them, the Tartars, were invading. They had set their sights on the city of Krakow. Krakow was the the most wealthy merchant city in all of Eastern Europe, and so their plan was they were going to launch a surprise attack on Krakow. They were going to slip through the forest in the middle of the night and try to fall on the city before anybody knew what was going on, and so here they came creeping through the forest, but there was one watchman who was stationed in the bell tower who saw what was going on and he sounded his bugle warning for the city and everybody in the city was able to to wake up and get the defenses ready and they fended off the invaders because of it but as he was sounding that bugle call as soon as it started the invaders were so um uh, alarmed by what was going on that they launched a flurry of arrows his way and as he was sounding the bugle call one of those arrows went through his throat and killed him on the spot but because of his call the city was saved and so now every day in krakow poland every hour on the hour a bugler goes up into the bell tower of the downtown city and he sounds this bugle call in fact the bugle call ends very abruptly mid-note the the song the bugler playing uh, is playing ends as a reminder of this man who had died suddenly who had given his life, sounding a warning to protect the city. He's memorialized for it. We recognize and honor people who protect others by giving important warnings. Well, that's a really good way of thinking about what Paul is doing in his letter to the Colossians. Paul is writing a letter to a church that is under fire. There are false teachers who are slipping into this area. They're creeping in to this area around Colossae. And what they want to do is they want to rip apart the faith of these new Christians. This is a relatively young church, and they're coming in and they're going to distort their faith by telling them they need something more than Jesus. So the message of these false teachers was, hey, it's great that you have Jesus. That's a wonderful starting point. But if you're going to go into the deep things of God, you've got to move beyond that. Jesus is sort of the, the first step on the staircase, Jesus is just the first rung on the ladder. So if you wanted to ascend to the heights of the spiritual world, you've got to move past Jesus. That's that's the message. And so Paul is writing this letter to urge this church not to take the bait. We never move past Jesus. Faith in Jesus isn't just what needed to happen for you to come to faith. It's not just what needed to happen for you to enter salvation. Faith in Jesus is also how you grow in that salvation. It's also how you persevere in that salvation. So never fall for the lie that that it's faith in Jesus that kind of brings you into the foyer and then there are other experiences and there there are other rules you need to follow to enter the deep things of God. In fact, the way Paul says it, you'll remember from a few weeks ago, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 that in Jesus we are complete, meaning You have everything you need if you have Jesus. Everything you need. In fact, the the passage we looked at last week, verses 11 through 15, Paul means to leave us marveling at what is ours through faith in Jesus. Paul says if you are in Jesus by faith, you've received the only circumcision that matters. The, The dead flesh, Paul says, has been cut away from your heart. There's no extra ritual you need to add to that. If your faith is in Jesus, Paul says, you have been baptized into him. You've been immersed into Jesus so that your bond with him could not be any tighter. Your union with Christ could not be any deeper. If you're in Christ, Paul says, you've been made alive through him. You have spiritual eyes and ears that have been awakened to the truth of God. If your faith is in Jesus, Paul says, you have been forgiven all trespasses. It's not that, that some of your trespasses have been forgiven and now you've got to work enough to rebalance the scales. In Christ, all trespasses are forgiven. And then Paul says that if your faith is in Christ, he has disarmed your spiritual enemies. He's just stacking up all of the blessings that are ours through Christ. And he's doing it all to make the point hey, what else could you possibly need? If all of this is yours in Jesus, what could be lacking? But Paul knows that there is a heavy temptation to move on from that. Or, or I should say, there's always the temptation. This wasn't just in Colossae, but there is always the temptation to recenter our faith on something other than Jesus. And man, that pressure was so heavy for these new Christians. Imagine if you have people who moved into town, you're, you're pretty pretty young in the faith. You've heard the gospel from this guy named Epaphras, but now this new legion of false teachers comes in and they're telling you, hey, if all you've done is believe in Jesus, you're still in the spiritual kiddie pool. You're still missing out on the real great parts of the spiritual life. But if you'll do these rules we're giving you, if, we'll, if you'll have these experiences we're offering you, then you can have real spiritual life. And so Paul is urging them not to take the bait. We don't move off the ground of faith in Jesus. We don't move beyond Jesus. All we do in the spiritual life is we just sink our roots down deeper into Jesus. We know him better. We trust him more fully. That's the call of the Christian life. And so Paul, in these verses in Colossians, is sounding a warning. So we're going to look at four verses this morning. If your Bible's open to Colossians 2... We're picking up in verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 19. Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So there are two particular warnings I want to highlight that Paul gives here. There is a warning against legalism, And then there's a warning against mysticism. So number one, I want to see the danger of legalism. Look at how he starts it. Look at verse 16 again where he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Now I need to say something about that opening phrase where Paul says, Let no one judge you. Because that sounds like the sort of phrase that would be the mantra of our culture today, right? That Colossians 2.16 would be the favorite verse of our world. Let no one judge you. That's the sort of thing you might hear at a, at a pride parade. Nobody can judge me. But make sure you understand what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that there's no uh, moral standard that we're held accountable to. Paul is not saying here um, in any way that, that we're above accountability or that we're each a law to ourselves. Remember, the same Paul who says here, let no one judge you in these ways, is the same guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who says that in the church, we're obligated to, he uses the same word, to judge those who are inside. In other words, we have an obligation in church life to hold one another accountable, to keep watch over one another's spiritual lives. Okay, so Paul's not contradicting himself here in Colossians. Instead, what Paul is saying here in Colossians is, is he's encouraging these Christians not to live their lives by other people's judgments of them, particularly when those other people are judging you by extra-biblical rules. Okay? In other words, don't give legitimacy to people who try to apply extra-biblical standards, beyond gospel standards, to you, and they make those extra rules and standards The measure of your salvation or the measure of your spiritual life. That's the warning. And you'll notice that verse 16 begins with that word, so. Or your translation might read, therefore. So he's tying this in very clearly to what just came before this. So right before this, Paul made the point that that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Our forgiveness comes from Jesus. Our spiritual life is tied to Jesus. And so now Paul's saying... Now that you have Jesus, don't let anyone impose any extra rules and regulations on you. The spiritual life is all about connection to Jesus. He's the vine, we're the branches. Our spiritual life is all about abiding in Jesus by faith. So don't get unsettled by someone who comes along and says you're not really saved or you're not really spiritual because you don't follow all the extra rules that they bring into the equation. So what were the rules and regulations that they were trying to impose on these Christians in Colossae? Well, Paul says they were judging them in food and drink. What's he talking about there? Well, you know how the Old Testament is filled with all sorts of uh, dietary laws. There were clean foods that you were allowed to eat And there were unclean foods that you were not allowed to eat. And that that whole setup in the Old Testament was meant to make the point that God requires people to be clean in order to stand before him. It was all all meant to kind of stimulate their consciences so that they would think in these categories that there are some things that are clean that please God and there are things that are unclean that displease God to the extent that in the Old Testament, if you ate unclean things, you were considered unclean And you could not go into the temple for worship. If you ate unclean things, you could not go into the temple and draw near to God. And so you can imagine how these false teachers were now applying that to these young Christians. They were saying, hey, it's great that you've believed in Jesus. You've entered the foyer. But if you want to draw near to God, you've got to do the same thing they did in the Old Testament. You, You need to start keeping all the dietary rules. Here's a list of clean foods that you can eat. Here's a list of unclean foods that you can't eat. And if you really want to know the deep spiritual life, you better start following these rules and regulations, these dietary plans from the Old Testament. And just in a broad sense, the problem with what they were teaching is that the New Testament clearly and consistently tells us that all of those dietary laws have been done away with. Jesus makes that point in Mark chapter 7. Um, God makes that point to Peter very clearly in Acts chapter 10. And then Peter turns around and teaches that same principle to the other Christians in Acts chapter 11. Paul makes that point over and over again. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. So the Old Testament categories of clean and unclean foods are done away with. Now we're still called to apply wisdom in what we eat. But I don't have to follow a certain diet in order to be accepted by God. Following a certain dietary plan does not make me more pleasing to God. And did you notice how it wasn't just about what they would eat, because Paul says that they're, they're judging them in food and in drink. And that's a little less clear, because you get lots of, lots of food regulations in the Old Testament that everybody was required to follow, but there aren't any uh, drink regulations in the Old Testament, uh, other than there would be certain groups who would abstain from certain drinks at periods of time. For instance, you remember, are you familiar with the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament? That's a vow that people would take where they were consecrating themselves to God. It was voluntary. They would do it for a certain amount of time. And part of the Nazarite vow was you would abstain from wine. You wouldn't drink any fermented drinks. Or priests in the Old Testament, when they were serving in the temple... They weren't allowed to drink any intoxicating beverages. So there are groups in the Old Testament that were required at times to abstain from drinks. And so the best guess is that these false teachers were applying that to these believers in Colossae. And they were saying, hey, don't you see in the Old Testament how all of the people who were closest to God, like the priest, also abstained from certain drinks. So if you want to be as close to the God as the priest were you better abstain from certain drinks too. So they're applying food laws and drink laws to these believers as a criteria for really drawing near to God. But it wasn't just about their diet. It was also about them observing certain days. Because do you see how he says they're also judging them according to festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. That means they're requiring these Christians in Colossae to keep the Old Testament religious calendar. Festivals were those annual feasts like uh, Passover or the Feast of Trumpets. New moons were monthly feasts. That was the mark of a new month. There were certain sacrifices you would offer on a new moon. And then the Sabbath was the weekly reminder. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, you observe the Sabbath. And so what they were doing is they were taking this whole Old Testament calendar and they're applying this Old Testament calendar to these Christians in Colossae. And they're saying you can't have real deep life with God if you don't also keep these extra rules. If you want to be part of the inside group with God... Here's an extra set of rules and regulations for you to follow. And and what this is, is simply legalism. And legalism really comes in two forms. First, legalism is the idea that the way I earn God's favor is by keeping God's law. So if you will obey God's law well enough... It's like you take all the laws in the Bible, you stand them up like a ladder, and you climb those laws. If you can obey the laws well enough, that's how you get yourself to God. So any form of works righteousness is legalism. That's one form that it takes. But, but there's also another form of, of legalism. The other form is, is where you create extra rules that go beyond the Bible... And you make those extra rules the measure of real spirituality. So it's it's an approach to sanctification that is more rules-based than it is Christ-based. And legalism is a poison to the church for a couple reasons. One, it's a poison to the church because it saps all the joy out of the faith. Because it makes the spiritual life not about knowing Christ, pursuing Christ, enjoying Christ, worshiping Christ, pleasing Christ. It makes the spiritual life entirely about keeping a checklist of rules. It takes the joy out of the faith. Here's another thing that legalism does, just like it's happening here in Colossae. Legalism inevitably breeds a spirit of judgmentalism. So that when legalism begins to flourish in my life... I will very quickly begin judging everyone else by how well they keep the extra rules that I've come up with. And then finally, legalism promotes a a kind of surface level righteousness without ever really dealing with the deep issues of the heart. Okay, so Paul is warning this church and Paul is warning us about the dangers of legalism. Now, Now let me give a quick clarification. Um, having personal convictions that you follow and live your Christian life by is not the same as legalism. Living your life that it, so it's marked by self-control, that's not legalism. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Being earnest and diligent in a pursuit of holiness before God is not the same as legalism. All that's part of sanctification, but the problem comes on two sides. It comes on one hand when I start viewing my ability to get to God and please God by how well I keep rules and laws. That's, that's one danger. And the other danger comes when I make my personal convictions the measure of everyone else's spiritual life. So my personal convictions become the standard that everyone else gets judged by. And if you don't live your life adhering to all of my non-biblical convictions then you're, you can't possibly be very close to God. So if, you're, if you really want to follow God, you, you need to only listen to this particular brand that I like of, Chris, of Christian music. And if you're serious about your walk with God, then you'll follow this particular devotional plan. And if you're serious about your walk with God, and you've seen this take all sorts of forms, right? If you're serious about your walk with God, then, then your hair will not grow over your ears, If you're serious about your walk with God, you have to follow this particular conviction about alcohol or this particular conviction about tobacco. You could not possibly be serious about your walk with God if you have a tattoo. Now, I have convictions and preferences about virtually every issue that I just mentioned there. I have convictions and preferences about it all. We should be very careful and very intentional about the music that we listen to. The soundtrack of your life will have a profound impact on how you think. I'm convinced there needs to be some sort of helpful plan in how you pursue Christ in your devotional life. Um, We offer Bible reading plans that many of us follow together as a church. The Bible gives very strong warnings about the dangers of alcohol, and the Bible forbids any, any kind of drunkenness. I have a grandfather who died completely isolated from the rest of the family because of alcohol. So my general rule is um, I don't drink. Um, I, I don't have any tattoos and don't plan on getting any, getting any tattoos, not because I think it is a biblical issue, but I don't want to get any tattoos. I have preferences and convictions on every issue that I just mentioned there. And and most of my preferences and convictions are with things where it's not clearly spelled out in the Bible what those convictions have to be. And I'm going to follow my convictions on those areas. And I'm going to encourage you to have biblically informed convictions on each one of those areas. And you should be able to explain what those convictions are in each one of those areas. But I can't make my convictions on some issue that isn't spelled out in the Bible, I can't make my convictions the measure of real godliness. Does that make sense? So there are people who question the spirituality of Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, one of the um, most ex- uh, significant Christian figures over the last 500 years. There are people who question Martin Luther because Martin Luther brewed his own beer. There, there are people who question if Charles Spurgeon was really a godly man because in some of his portraits he is painted holding a cigar. And I would just say, if that's you, the problem is not with those men. If your understanding of sanctification is, uh, Chris, you know the old saying, Christians don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. Well, if if that's your whole understanding of sanctification, you have a very stunted understanding of what sanctification is. So beware of anyone or anything who, first, makes your ability to keep rules and laws the measure of how you get to God. And then secondly, beware of anyone or anything that makes extra biblical rules the measuring stick of real godliness and real spirituality. Don't let legalism worm its way into your heart or worm its way into our church. Here's the second thing. Number two, he highlights the cure for legalism. The cure for legalism. Look at verse 17. Paul says about all of these different food and drink laws and all the different festivals. He says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance. And the word substance there is just the word for body. Those are a shadow, but the body, the substance is Christ. What Paul's doing here is he's painting this wonderful word picture. So imagine, imagine all of human history is this timeline. And then Jesus comes and Jesus stands towering over the whole timeline of history. He's the central figure in all of history. But as Jesus stands there on the timeline, he casts a shadow on everything that came before him. He's standing on on the timeline, casts a shadow Over the whole Old Testament. And Paul's saying that's what all of those Old Testament rules and regulations are. They're a shadow. They're just there to give us a faint outline of who Jesus would be. All of those Old Testament rules and dietary laws were just there to give us a glimpse of what was to come. But the reality has come now. So Paul is saying, we don't need the shadows anymore because the person has come. So it would be like this afternoon, your kids or, or your grandkids who are young come to see you. And imagine you're standing outside and your grandchild or your little kid comes running up to you to give you a hug. How much sense would it make for you in that moment instead of looking at your grandchild to turn toward their shadow? And to stoop down and start petting their shadow on the ground it'd be utter foolishness, right? You're not concerned with the shadow now because you have the substance. You have the person. Well, Paul's saying that's what all of those Old Testament ceremonial laws were. They were shadows, but we don't live in the shadows anymore because we have Jesus now. So those dietary laws were designed to teach us something about Jesus. What did they teach us about Jesus? Jesus. Well, the dietary laws taught us that we need to be clean to come before God. Well, now, in Jesus, I'm made clean. Now, in Jesus, He is my righteousness. That's what the dietary laws. What about all the different festivals and feast days? Same thing. So the Day of Atonement was this yearly reminder that they needed a substitute to die in their place so their sins could be covered. Now we have the reality of that. The final sacrifice has been offered. In Jesus, sin is covered once and for all. The, the great Passover celebration every year was this wonderful etch, this wonderful reminder... That they needed to be sheltered underneath the blood of another to escape the righteous wrath of God. And now the final Passover lamb has been offered. It's under Jesus with our sins nailed with him to the cross. It's under his blood that we are sheltered from the righteous wrath of God. The Sabbath was this weekly reminder that we desperately need rest And then Jesus comes along saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So do you see how all of these Old Testament things are shadows that point us forward to Jesus? And so Paul is saying to these Christians, you don't need to live in the shadows anymore. These folks who are telling you, you need to keep all these Old Testament customs and ceremonies. They're just pointing you back to shadow land. We now live in the reality of Christ. That's the cure. Well, here's the, the second danger, it's the third point. He highlights the danger of mysticism. Now, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but remember why Paul is hitting on these different issues. It's because the false teachers who have come into this area have come in with this new uh, amalgamation sort of religion where they've combined all sorts of things. They've combined Gnosticism and mysticism and legalism and they've, they've joined all of these different thoughts together in this false teaching. One of the thoughts they brought in is legalism. That's why he addresses that. Another one of the thoughts they brought in is mysticism. And that's why he addresses that next. Look at verse 18. Paul says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding in those things which he's not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now, If you have a different translation, every translation in here will word that a little differently. Because verse 18 is probably the most debated verse in all of Colossians when it comes to just exactly how it should be worded. So let's just walk through this one phrase at a time. First, Paul says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Now that word just means don't let anyone disqualify you. It was a word that was used in athletic competition. So think of the Olympics. And during the competition, during the race, one of the judges steps out and says, you've been disqualified. You, you, you're not eligible to win the prize because you broke a rule. You stepped over the line. You stepped out of your lane. You cut across the track. You're disqualified from winning the prize. Well, Paul's saying that's what the false teachers were doing. They were telling these Christians that they had been spiritually disqualified. Disqualified. They weren't eligible to win the prize of God's blessings and God's glory because they weren't keeping all the rules. They weren't experiencing everything they needed to experience. Well, what exactly were they telling them they were disqualified in? Look at that next phrase. Paul says these false teachers delighted in false humility and worship of angels. Now, that's a tricky phrase. False humility means... Uh, voluntary humility, or your translation might read self-abasement. So the idea is the false teachers were saying you need to abase yourself. You need to go without, you need to lower yourself. We'll see later. This is probably connected to fasting. They were saying you need to go through some extreme fasting. And why were they telling them they needed to do this? For the worship of angels. Now there's probably an Old Testament connection here. So there's a story in, uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel spends three weeks mourning and fasting over the condition of things. And it's after these three weeks of mourning and fasting that Daniel has an encounter with a heavenly visitor. And it's probably something like that that these false teachers are now applying to themselves. And they're saying, hey, if you will abase yourself, if you'll fast long enough, if you'll lower yourself enough, you can have an encounter with an angel. Now, I don't know if they, if they would have said they were worshiping angels, but that's how Paul describes it. And the thought is that they were, they were giving so much attention to pursuing an encounter with an angel that they had turned their attention away from Jesus. Or, or it could be translated worship with angels, not the worship of, but the worship with angels. And if that's the case, they were saying, hey, we'll show you how you can join in with the angels, how you can have a vision and you can enter into the very throne room room of God. So, in essence, what's happening is they are pursuing these mystical experiences. We'll show you how to have an encounter with an angel. We'll show you how to have a vision where you can enter into the very presence of God. And if if you've never experienced that, you're still stuck in JV Christianity. That's the sort of thing they seem to be teaching. You haven't entered the big leagues of the faith if you've never had a vision like this, if you've never had a special dream, if you've never encountered an angel. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is it makes the apex of Christianity something other than Jesus. So the highlight of the Christian life in this view is not knowing Christ. It's not faith in Christ. It's not being made alive in Christ. The real highlight is having an encounter with an angel. The real highlight is having a special vision where you get to see heaven. That's when you'll really be something. And listen, there are still large swaths of Christianity that are driven by this very thing. Who everything for them is about running around to see the latest person who claims to have a vision of heaven. They had a near-death experience, and they can come back to tell you about all the rainbow-colored unicorns in heaven, and people flock and sell books by the millions. You can listen to preachers who will spend hours just describing their special visions and the voices they hear from heaven and the angels that they claim they have encountered. And the idea is, since they had that experience, they must be really godly. Because that's the measuring stick of real godliness is you have to have a special supernatural encounter as if that is the top of the mountain. So we're told, if you really want to know the deep things of God, you need to pursue the same kind of extra experience. And what happens is, very suddenly, the focus moves off of Jesus onto one of these extra subjective experiences. Paul adds that they were, here's the next phrase, they were intruding into those things which they had not seen. Now that is the trickiest phrase in the trickiest verse. So let me read you a few different translations to help you get the gist of it. The Holman translates it, they were claiming access to a visionary realm. The ESV reads, they were going on in detail about visions. The New American Standard reads, They're take, he was taking his stand on visions. Do you get it? So they were claiming they had access to a special spiritual plane. The, the wording Paul uses here is, it's actually technical language that was used by the mystery religions that operated in this area. And what the mystery religions did is they claimed that they could show you how to move out of the foyer of the fate and really experience a deep encounter with the gods. And so these false teachers had incorporated that into their teaching. And they were saying, "Hey, there's a way. Maybe you enter a trance-like state and you leave this physical world behind, and then you'll you'll enter a new spiritual dimension. And that's when you'll really know God." So imagine the impact this is having on these new Christians. They're going, "Hey, you think you know God? Have you ever had a vision of God? You think you're spiritual? Have you ever had a conversation with an angel?" And that became an extra measuring stick of real spirituality. And imagine the the toll that would have taken on these young Christians. They're hearing these stories and they're thinking, well, I've never seen an angel. I've never had a dream like that. I've never had that sort of vision. Maybe something is wrong with me. And this same sort of mysticism is what infects much of evangelicalism today. You're a Christian? Well, have you received the second blessing? You're a Christian, but have you spoken in tongues yet? You're a Christian, have you you been slain in the Spirit? Have you ever been in a service that gets overtaken with holy laughter? And people end up running all over the place looking to have that experience. They run all over the place hoping to have that sort of special encounter. But listen to me, church. The Christian faith is about resting In the work that Jesus has done for us. It is not about running after a new special experience. We don't live our faith. We don't live the Christian walk by subjective experience. We live the Christian walk by objective truth. If your faith is in Jesus, there is no extra experience you need to have in order to know God or know the fullness of the Christian life or to really live in God's blessings. And finally, Paul just peels back the last layer and tells us the ultimate problem with these false teachers. Look at that last phrase of verse 18. He says, they are vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. In other words, what he's saying is what these false teachers were doing really just fed the monster of pride. When I can stand up and go, hey, look, I've had an experience you haven't had. I'm on the inside. You're still stuck on the outside. I'm in the inner circle of Christian experience. And so what that leads to is it, it either leads to feelings of superiority, if I claim to have had that experience, Or it leads to feelings of inferiority if I say I haven't had that experience. And so what Paul's saying here is none of that's really spiritual. What that is, is it is fleshly. That's the word that he uses. You realize there are whole movements operating under the umbrella of Christianity that do nothing but feed the flesh. That's what Paul's saying this mysticism is. Avoid that in your Christian walk. Don't fall for the lie that you need to be chasing after some special spiritual experience. That if you haven't heard an audible voice from God, if you haven't encountered an angel, if you haven't been slain in the Spirit, you're missing something. Everything God has for you is yours in Christ. Well, here's the fourth thing, the final thing. He gives us the cure for mysticism. And that's in verse 19. Paul says, here's what those false teachers were leading them not to do here's what they really needed to do holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. You see what he's saying? He's saying that real spirituality is not about holding to an extra set of rules and regulations real spirituality is not about holding on to a special vision that you say you had from God Real spirituality is about holding on to our head. That means it's about holding on to Christ. Christ is the head of the body. Every believer is one of the body parts. And Paul says it is through the head alone that we get our nourishment. I don't need an extra set of rules to grow in the faith. I don't need some special experience or encounter to grow in the faith everything I need to be right with God and everything I need to grow in the faith is mine in Christ. I just need to know Christ. I need to know him better through his word. I need to trust him more deeply. I need to worship him more consistently. I need to obey him more thoroughly. I just need Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul says he's also the one who knits us together. And this is raising the question of, so they're bringing this teaching to these new churches. So where, where does real unity come from in church life? Does real unity come from us coming up with our special set of rules we're going to follow as a church? And we're all going to adhere to the same convictions and we're all going to dress the same way. and We're going to, all going to listen to the same music and we're all going to follow the same principles. And that's unity. That's not unity. That's, that's uniformity. But that's not what unity looks like. So Paul's saying that that's not where unity comes from. And I would add, neither does our unity come from thinking we're all going to have the same experience. We're united because we've all been slain in the spirit. No, no, no. Paul says our unity comes from our connection to Christ. I have the same spiritual life in me that you have in you. It is our love for Jesus and the life we have in Jesus that binds us together. And when you try to come up with a unity that's based on something other than that or beyond that, you end up with a counterfeit unity. So Paul's reminding that it's our unity that comes in Christ. And then one last phrase. Paul says it's through Christ that the body grows with the increase that is from God. In other words, this is where real growth comes from. And this is the only sort of growth we should be interested in as Christians and as a church. There are lots of other ways to grow my ego. There are lots of other ways to grow my resume. But there is only one way to grow in godliness. And that is by holding fast to Jesus. So you know what else you need, church? Nothing. You don't need an extra list of rules. So don't let anybody impose that on you. You don't need some special experience. So don't spend your spiritual life chasing after that. You just need Jesus. And he is yours by faith. So don't move off of that ground. Hold fast to Christ. That's the message. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a couple minutes To go to the Lord in your seat. And listen, you and I are constantly under pressure to turn our attention to other things. We're constantly under pressure to judge our own or others' lives by extra-biblical rules or to think we need to chase after an experience or feel like we're less than because we haven't had a certain experience that the person next door claims that they've had. Give up on that. Everything you need to be right with God, everything you need for life and godliness is yours in Jesus. So trust in Christ. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned to Christ. You've lived your life trying to improve things enough. Maybe you've spent a lot of your spiritual life Chasing after this special experience that you think will would finally turn things around for you If you could just get that experience, so you've run to this church and this service and this meeting Hoping you'd find that experience that would turn things around none of those experiences will turn things around it is Jesus and Jesus alone So give up thinking you'll ever find anything that can outdo that repent of living for yourself And put your faith in Jesus and what he's done. It is in him we're right with God. It is in him God declares us righteous. It is in him we have the resources that we need. So call out to Christ in faith. Christian, cut away anything in your life that counteracts this, that works against this.